Our scripture reading today is from Acts 9, 1 through 22. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. But, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the same who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon this name? And he has not come here to do this for the same purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The word of the Lord. celebrate the resurrection today, we are considering perhaps the most famous conversion story in the history of the church. And that's the conversion story of Saul, this leader within Judaism, who becomes Paul. 
and writes more books than anyone else in the New Testament. He's uniquely God's chosen instrument and undergoes a very unique conversion. And so I can imagine that some of you might realize or think, well, Saul is utterly unique. None of us or very few of us are going to have a conversion experience like this. Few of us are going to go on and have a ministry like Saul's. And so where do we really connect with this kind of conversion story? Well, just because we look at Jesus' life and say, well, our life isn't going to quite be like Jesus, uh, his life and our, our ministry is not going to be quite like his ministry, does not mean that his life is not exemplary. And I think this conversion of Saul's story, which is incredibly important to the author Luke, in fact, he's going to go out of his way to include the conversion story three times in the book of Acts. Right? It's very significant to him. It's intended as a paradigm by which to reflect on our own conversion. And that's the invitation to you today, is to, to wrestle with, to consider your own conversion in the light of Saul's conversion. So to do that, we'll ask three basic questions of the passage. Why did Saul convert? What did conversion look like for Saul? And was conversion worth it for Saul? Well, why did Saul convert? When we meet him, in the beginning of our passage, he's nowhere near being interested in converting to follow Jesus. In fact, he's very intent on persecuting what is known as the way, which is how the early church was referred to as it just began a number of times in the book of Acts. But nowhere after that uh, will the early church be referred to as the way. And the last time we saw Saul, he was standing over and approving of the stoning of Stephen. It's an individual who is not just intent on uh, persecuting in, in the sense of throwing in jail the followers of Jesus. He's intent, if need be, on putting them to death. And so in a very real and literal way, in verse 1, we read that Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's seeking permission from the priesthood to carry out essentially warrants of arrest to the synagogues in Damascus. Now, during Paul's day, Rome rules the roost. But what Rome does to run its empire is it leaves local matters to local authorities. And the local authorities in Judea is the priesthood. So if Paul, or Saul at this point, has the permission of the priesthood, then he can go, over, uh, go after completely legally those who are following after Jesus or who, those who consider Jesus to be the Messiah. So he's hunting them down, persecuting them, and he seems to be robust in this endeavor. Now, so you know, how would we evaluate Saul's heart in the midst of what he's doing? Now, I raised this under the, this first question we're wrestling with is why did Saul convert? When we think about conversion, we often think about it in the West and particularly kind of a post-Reformation Western view in a very particular way. And we, the way is kind of like this. We think someone needs to come to a place of crisis, in essence, or of recognition of need before they're ready to receive Jesus. So sometimes you'll hear people say, well, that person isn't quite ready to receive the gospel. Or that person just needs to go further down the road and they'll realize that what they're pursuing won't satisfy them and then they'll be ready to receive the gospel. Or in a Lutheran sense, someone must come to uh, the realization that they cannot possibly achieve righteousness through the law. They realize that their own efforts are futile and then they're ready to receive grace. Now, there are 
are aspects of truth to all of these assertions. But what I'm trying to demonstrate to you this morning in this first question is, this is not what we see with Saul. Saul isn't in any state of crisis. Uh, he's not wrestling inside with any existential question. He isn't saying, what, what will fulfill me? I must find some answer to these questions. In fact, every hint that we get from Scripture is that Saul felt like he was doing a great job of honoring God and honoring his, uh, being faithful to him in persecuting the church. So there are two points where Paul actually will write later and look back on his experience as a leader of Judaism persecuting the church. And in Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul will write that he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. And in Philippians chapter four, verses four through, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Saul was not in any state of crisis. So if he wasn't in a state of crisis, why then did he convert? Well, he converted because, in a sense, Jesus landed on his head. He converted because the solution, the cosmic solution, God's incarnation, came and required as a result that Saul rethink his problem. Right? The solution drove Saul to consider his uh, and move through his conversion. Now, as I've already told you, we have a tendency to think that conversion comes when we're driven by our problem. I need to be saved from sin. I need to be rescued, so on and so forth. Again, this is not what Saul is thinking. And I want to point out to you at least two dangers to always viewing the solution, which is Jesus, through the lens of the problem. If we're always approaching the solution through the problem, there's a couple limitations to that. One is that the problem will always limit the scope of the solution. Now, what do I mean? Imagine, imagine a young boy growing up in Germany in World War II. And like most young men in Germany, he would have participated in the various military schools that were created to train up the younger generation of German soldiers. And so he, he's heard Hitler, and he thinks he paints quite a spectacular picture for the future of his country. And he likes going through the military training, and he thinks that other countries have beat up unfairly on Germany in the past 20 years or 30 years. And so this is where he's at. And imagine further that one day he's going to his military school and he realizes that he's forgotten his lunch. Now this is a problem because you get punished for forgetting your lunch. Forgetting your lunch is not the kind of thing a disciplined soldier does. And so he's really filled with anxiety. He's worried that he's going to be found out. Now imagine that you come to this boy right, on this particular morning and you ask him what his particular, or not only particular, but what his biggest problem is. Well, at that moment, he's going to say, my biggest problem right now is I don't have a lunch. And as soon as they find out about it at lunchtime, I'm going to be punished and mocked by the other boys. And I don't want any of that to happen. Now you could say, oh, you think that's your biggest problem. Actually... Your biggest problem is that you've been duped by a lot of propaganda 
You're part of a country that is one of the most sophisticated and uh, despotic regimes in the history of the world. Your leader that you look up to, to some extent, is actually a monster. Right? And this is an enormous problem for the world. Actually, if your country wins this war, uh, most, of, most of the industrialized world will be cast into darkness. <laughs> and the boy says, yeah, but you don't understand. I don't have my lunch today. Right? The problem right, gives scope to the solution. And so if you're always starting with the problem that you have and how you want Jesus to be that solution, then it's going to limit the scope of how Jesus might enter into that solution. And this is the second problem, that if you're always looking at things through the lens of your problem, then you limit the options of remedy that the solution might offer. And so in this case, imagine you know, some, a boat that capsizes. Say you're in the ocean, a boat capsizes, you, everyone is drowning in essence, and you're, you're panicked. So you start flailing about, and you think the only thing that's going to save you is, is some kind of flotation device. Other people are trying to help you, but you're sure they're not strong enough to help you sustain until a boat arrives. So you start pushing them under and drowning other people so that you will, you will survive. And, and imagine someone comes up to you and they say, uh, a scuba diver, he says, I have an extra tank. I just need you to, to come with me. And you say, no way. I need a flotation device. You're not going to do it. Imagine something even sillier, just for fun for a minute. Imagine somebody came up to you, came up to you and say, you know, I can grant you gills. And thus you'll survive. And you say, well, that's stupid. I'm not going to, to buy into that. But that, that is small in compared to Jesus' solution coming to you and saying, I will give you life if you will come and die. Right? That request is far more significant, far more unbelievable, and demands far more than assuming for a moment that somebody had the ability to grant you gills, to breathe. And yet Jesus says, this is the way you enter into life. Now those examples might be abstract. Consider, consider something perhaps just a little bit more practical to drive the point home. A married couple in which they've just had a horrible season. And they're kind of at wit's end. And they really, by and large, hate each other. And uh, the man is so frustrated, he just wants his wife to respect him. He says, if, if she would just respect me and give me some honor, this could go in a decent direction. And this is what I need Jesus to show up and do. And Jesus actually shows up and says, well, really, actually, I'd like you, I'd like you to bleed some more. I'd like you to die more so that you may come to life and offer life to your wife. You think, no, that's not the, that's not the solution I'm looking for. You're not listening, Jesus. Right? Because if you define the problem solely as my wife isn't doing what she's supposed to be doing, then you're not going to be open to the solution that Jesus may be bringing on the scene. Right? You see how always beginning with the problem and then approaching the solution will always, always limit the nature of the solution. And we're asking the question, why did Saul convert? He didn't have a need. He didn't have any angst or crisis. He converted because this thing that he thought was made up all of a sudden became real. It was a historical reality as the risen Christ confronted him, which required him then to rethink everything. Say, oh, if Jesus actually is the Messiah fulfilling all of these scriptures, I have to go back to square one. Why does he convert? Because he's met by the solution. Well, okay. What does it mean then for Saul to convert? Or 
what does it look like as he does convert. You can see the meeting in verses 4 through 6. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And how does Saul respond? Well, in the midst of his conversion, he's obedient. He says, okay, I'm going to see this out. I'm going to go to the city. I'm going to hold up in this house. And I'm going to wait three days to see what happens. And he engages his physical blindness, which is surely intended as something that is intended to communicate to Saul and us his spiritual blindness. The Saul thought he saw. Indeed, he was actually blind. And he will only come to see as Jesus enables him to see. And he sees Jesus as the solution uh, to all of the scriptures. In verses 17 and 18, Ananias, the prophet, arrives and meets with Saul. And Saul's eyes are open and Saul is baptized. And Saul then proceeds to adopt an entirely new identity. So on the one hand, don't underestimate what Saul has been required to give up. Saul was preeminent in his field. He had gone to the best Jewish schools, the school of Gamaliel. He had surpassed all of his peers. He had persecuted this new sect with zeal. And he had gained respect and risen in the ranks. And suddenly he's decided that he now will go and recruit for this side that he has persecuted. And so he's saying goodbye, not only to his achievements, but to really to his entire education in the sense that he now understands it as being fulfilled in Jesus. His identity is reforged in which he gives up all of the markers of success in an earthly sense to go forth and to be someone who is a complete outsider, to live a harsh existence out of obedience to Christ rather than to enjoy the success that he has already had. We see Saul also, as the beginning of Galatians tells us, Paul recounts that after he had converted, what did he do? He ran away, not, I mean not in the sense of trying to escape, he withdrew is a better word, to Arabia, which we would call, uh, which would be modern day Syria, and he goes there for three years, and we know essentially nothing of what transpired there for three years, except he searched the scriptures to understand fully how Jesus was their fulfillment. And so he goes to completely reforge his understanding of God in this world, his work revealed in Christ, and of his identity as being his representative, his servant. So are you committed to a new identity that is characterized by the risen Christ and submission to Jesus? Is that the identity that you are pursuing in the way that Saul recklessly pursues it as he becomes Paul? I think we struggle in this regard, and there is a, uh, a psychological dysfunction that helps us to understand a little bit of our challenge. The dysfunction is called a dissociative fugue, and it's quite rare, uh, but it's quite astonishing at the same time when it occurs. A dissociative fugue uh, happens when someone loses their autobiographical information. So you don't lose your ability to think or your knowledge of the world, or your ability to interact with the world, you just lose your identity. It's gone. So there have been uh, numbers of cases um, in the last century that have been chronicled of people who 
have one day simply vanished from their community and their setting, sometimes their family, relocate hundreds of miles and take up another job and another name. In a sense, it's almost as if they're sleepwalking because they're not fully conscious. They're operating at some subconscious level, but to an outsider, you generally tend to think that they are aware and awake. It was 2008 when a woman named Hannah Up, a, a young woman who was teaching at a school in Harlem, vanished into thin air, just disappeared. All of her uh, belongings were left behind, and her family and her close friends knew that she suffered from dissociative uh, fugue. And so they began to scour Manhattan. A couple weeks went by, and they, uh, she was spotted on a camera in the Apple store in Manhattan. So they ran there and tried to pursue her, but she had already left. Somebody even stopped her and asked her, are you the teacher who's been missing? And she waved them off like they didn't know what they were talking about. She had no idea. She eventually is found floating face down in New York Harbor beyond Robin's Reef, which is south of the Statue of Liberty. It's the Staten Island Ferry that's going back and forth. The captain sees her and goes over and assumes that she's dead because she's face down. Now, she, to do this, she left from the bank of the Hudson. Now, if you don't know New York Harbor, that's just a terrifying thing to do. Like to step in, the, the Hudson River is massive and filled with very large boats, but then to be swept out into New York Harbor may be one of my greatest terrors. So even telling you this story is um, it's just scary. And so she, she was there throughout the night, floating, uh, they know from various details, and eventually is picked up, and they pick her up, and she gasps and starts sobbing. So has no idea who she is. It's hospitalized, slowly, her family comes, slowly it comes back to her. And they debate things like, should we put a chip in you? Because we don't know when this is going to happen again. And eventually Hannah transfers to St. Thomas to teach at a Montessori school. She enjoys several great years there. The hurricanes come, and uh, she leaves a sundress, her wallet, and her keys on a stool at a cabana that she liked to frequent and hasn't been seen since. It vanished into thin air and currently has no idea who, who she is and perhaps has assumed an alternative identity. Now, the point of this story is this. This notion of dissociative fugue is something that every Christian experiences because um, the one thing I didn't tell you is it's often triggered by some kind of traumatic event. And so as the Christian walks through this world, and seeks to surrender and be obedient, as we see in the example of Saul, we inevitably meet trauma and hardship and frustration. And suddenly the identity that we have forged through our union with Christ is something that we forget, we dissociate from. And we want to run back right, to an old self, to a way in which we've navigated the world before. Oh, this is, this is really frustrating relationship. I'm going to retreat someplace where I don't have to deal with it. Or I'm going to run to some source of pleasure or escape so that I don't have to be fully engaged in this trauma. And so we experience this disassociation that would remove us from Christ, which is why what we see in Saul is so uh, impressive in the sense that not only his obedience, but uh, as he continues to suffer throughout his life, which will be significant and we'll consider in a moment, he continues to walk obediently and to surrender to the risen Christ. Why is he doing this? Because the solution has informed his problem. And Saul has decided that 
if the resurrection of the Son of God is true, then every problem and every question and every decision he makes in life has to be informed by that solution, which means that he has to surrender everything because he's owned by the one who paid for him. He has no right to himself, and he can't establish what he wants to do. He sees his life as bound up in the mission of Christ. And is that the way that you see your life? Where every question and every struggle, every, every hurdle that you have to go over, do you see it as informed by the solution, which is Jesus Christ? Now, you, you can't start with the problem, right? I'm asking you this morning to consider conversion in the sense of starting with the solution. If Jesus Christ reigns at the right hand of God, Right? He is the cosmic solution. He is not the solution to your little felt need at any given moment. And if he is the cosmic solution, then every problem must be seen in light of that. And do you actually go through this week and say, what does it mean for me to engage my work and my marriage and my kids or the pursuit of a spouse or the pursuit of a college or the pursuit of a career? All of these things, what does it mean to do that in light of my identity in Christ, in light of the kingdom that he has inaugurated and unfolding, and I'm called to participate in. Saul surrenders everything to embrace the reality of the solution, which might lead us to ask the question, was it really worth it for Saul? I mean, that is the question, isn't it? Is conversion worth it? Do we not wrestle with that? On a regular basis, do you not have I made really a good decision? To follow Jesus. He seems a bit distant and he doesn't seem to be executing the decisions I would like. Well, this Jesus doesn't mix words about the nature of his call to Saul. Look at verses 15 and 16. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Who wants to sign up for that? Right? You think maybe, just maybe, Saul might be like, okay, I thought things through, and I'm, I'm going to stick with the synagogue. You know, it's just a safer, more predictable life. And the, the cost here seems to be quite high of following you, Jesus. But he can't make that decision. Why? Because... The solution has confronted him. The historical reality that Jesus has raised from the dead now causes him to make every decision in light of that. And there's no way that he can walk away from that. And there's no way that he can say, well, this is what I would really prefer to do. I'd like to make a name for myself that won't really endear me to the person who will decide eternity. He knows that that would be a crackpot decision if Jesus is really raised from the dead. And so what is the suffering that Paul, Saul become Paul, will be drawn into? Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about it a bit. He's been drawn into an argument, you need to know, and he doesn't really want to enter this argument. Some people are arguing that they're a better apostle, better leader in the church than he is. And Saul says, or Paul at this time says, I don't really want to engage this argument, but because you've engaged in this nonsense, I'll play by your rules. And so he, uh, he starts but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool. Right? He doesn't want to be speaking this way. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. 
again, right? He doesn't really want to go down this road, but he is. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with uh, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And, get this, just a funny statement. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Right? For all of this physical suffering he's just enumerated. Right? And did you remember as we went through the passage in Acts, uh, what does Jesus say to Saul? Uh, I'm the one you're persecuting. In other words, as you deliver the blows to my people, I feel them. And now Paul is saying what? I'm filled with anxiety for the people that I shepherd. Right? He's, he's followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, and he goes on, um, pressure of me for anxiety for all the churches. Uh, who is weak and I am not weak? Right? He's saying, if they're weak, I, I feel that weakness. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant, but I care for the sheep that fall away. Right? What a life. What a stinky life. Right? By any measure of success or pleasure or happiness, right? for all the time we spend measuring happiness in various nations today, Paul would have scored incredibly low on such a scale. And yet we ask him, uh, is it worth it? And Paul says this, also in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, speaking of his life in Judaism... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. A man who expresses joy, a man who can look at everything that he could have had and said it's but rubbish, that I would gain Christ. Is your conversion worth it? Would you answer as Paul has answered? That everything I could gain, I count but rubbish, but to have and to experience Christ. How can Saul possibly, or Paul possibly say that? How can he express such joy and say that it's utterly worthwhile? Well, if we just go backwards through what we've covered, we see that he completely surrendered himself to the will of Christ. We say, well, why would he convert in that fashion? And we take another step back and we say, because the solution, the cosmic solution, confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, and he realized that all of his problems, and indeed his very life, had to be rethought. As you come to this table this morning, let me challenge you, or dare you, to be converted again. <clears throat> to be converted means to walk in a completely different direction. And you see that in Saul, right? He's walking this way. I'm a Jew persecuting the church. Now I'm following Jesus and inviting those uh, in the synagogues to worship Jesus. Completely different direction. 
I think many of us, our conversion is more like, well, I'm headed in this direction, and before me are all the things that I want. My family, the success of my children, my career, my financial stability, so on and so forth. And I receive Jesus, and I think, oh, good. And I turn 10 degrees. I think, great. Now I've got everything that I wanted, and I've got Jesus too. Is that real conversion? Is that a conversion that's informed by the conversion of Saul? In one sense, we never stop converting. And even if you find yourself, you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and have been baptized into his body, great. But don't kid yourself that every day, right, your identity in Christ has to be rethought and reforged and reappropriated so that you don't settle for a 10 degree turn, but are completely committed to surrendering all to him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning. We marvel that you would surrender all, giving up your life and being obedient unto death. We ask that you would meet us at this table and would encourage us that you would, in fact, drop on us like a ton of bricks. That we might know the reality of the resurrection in such a way that we have not before. And as a result, be moved to truly reconsider all problems in light of the solution, rather than hoping the solution will meet all of our problems. Would you give us wisdom in this and grow us up that we might be more fervent, more faithful servants of you? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.